Now entering Nerdist.com. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 38, Metamorphosis. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, the Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. From Hollywood, I'm John Champion. And from an uninhabited planetoid sustained only by the benevolence of a glowing entity, I'm Ken Ray. We are the show that picks apart the morals, messages, and meanings in Star Trek, and we mean all of Star Trek. I'd even say that like a good companion, we're here to breathe new life, to nurture and really love Star Trek. How are things on that planetoid, Ken? I want to envelop all over Star Trek. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, you do that in your own time, buddy. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, today we're talking about Metamorphosis, the uh, the touching story of a man and his companion. Yes, uh, although, although unbeknownst to that man. Mm-hmm. But we yeah. can get there. Yeah, we will. We will. But before we get there, there's a little thing that I like to do every week. I like trivia. You do like trivia. With you. I do. I love trivia. And I'm about to share some with you. And, uh, and I believe that you have a little trivia for me, so I can't wait to get to that. There you go. All right. So uh, as we probably all know, this episode is the first reference in Star Trek to Zephram Cochran, he who created uh, the warp drive. And, and discovered. Well, he discovered. Okay. He discovered, he discovered warp space. He created the warp he drive. He created so, the warp drive. I apologize. Yeah. I shouldn't have corrected you. You're right. But yeah. it was interesting the, to hear discovered. Yeah, yeah. The, the description is very specifically discovered yeah. uh, in this episode. And, uh, and of course, he's a favorite character then that got revisited and referenced later in Star Trek and, and done to great effect. Um, now, it is worth pointing out, though, that uh, if you're in it for the long haul like we are, the timeline does get a little messed up. Uh, we're given Cochrane's age when he is lost from Alpha Centauri and how much time has elapsed. And that would have mean that he would have been born in about the year 2030. And if you are fast forwarding way, way, way ahead to First Contact, you'll see that the actor James Cromwell, who plays Ephraim Cochrane, he looks a little older than 33 years old by the time First Contact rolls around. So we take it all with a grain of salt here. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, r- remember, um, though, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it was a war-ravaged planet, and he was mm-hmm. a hard-drinking fella. That'll age you quickly. Yeah, I mean, he wasn't even drinking like 151. I mean, he was he was like going up to uh, Hawkeye and Trappers still. <laughs> right, yeah. And pulling out yeah. something that, you know, might have passed for something you would pour into a car or yeah. something you could drink. So. Yeah, yep. it, maybe it was a rough 33 years. That's all I'm saying. It, it was. It was really tough. Um, another thing worth pointing out here, the Galileo shuttlecraft, and you know the one. It's the one that was destroyed in the Galileo 7, uh, but not the one that was swallowed by the doomsday machine. Um, yes, we had the Galileo shuttlecraft back in this episode. And um, have you noticed, I, I didn't really point it out on the uh, the first discussion about the Galileo, but did you notice that it's bigger on the inside? It's kind of like the TARDIS, <laughs> uh, not to cross genres here too much, but um, you've got a lot of headroom in there, people standing up, walking around, but then when they come out of the Galileo, they kind of have to duck down, and uh, the original designs 
and in the Starfleet Technical Manual uh, by Franz Joseph from the 70s, you see it's really short. It's more like a car. You just have enough room really to crouch down and sit in it. Um, but then every interior shot, everybody is just standing up and they got plenty of headroom. In and fact, it's removable seats as well. Because if we remember seats, yes. in Galileo 7, there were, well, seven people yes. on Galileo <laughs> and seats for all of them. Yeah. But there yeah. aren't just three extra seats Yeah, in this episode. Yeah. Well, and it always kind of weirded me out that the, the windows were really, really high up out yes. front. You know, <laughs> they, they usually have them covered. But I always found that entertaining that you're sitting in front of the control panel. And if I'm going to look out the window, I got to look up, I got to stretch and, and look out the window. But if you go with the scale that was intended, it would line up a little more correctly. Um, also want to point out, by the way, the, the nice little touch with uh, Nancy's scarf in this episode, Commissioner Nancy Hedford, um, as being a match to the glowing entity. Um, I thought it was a really cool touch, and it was totally unplanned. Was it uh, really? That was, yeah, yeah. That was something that the director noticed later on about her wardrobe and then just kind of squeezed it in. And I thought that was so very cool. You mean the part where she holds up the scarf? To yep. look at him yep. the way she had seen him was just like yep. a total on-the-set thing. Total on-the-set thing. Wow, that's kind of awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then uh, speaking of our guest stars here, uh, Glenn Corbett, who plays Zephram Cochran, um, ha- had a great career in Hollywood. He he guest starred on just practically every TV show worth noting. Um, and, of course, he was a regular on Route 66, which is kind of cool, a few years before he did Star Trek. And I want to point out, though, because I, I really talked glowingly at one point about this movie, the William Castle film Homicidal that predates Psycho um, and has a very similar storyline. So he was in that movie as well, alongside Joan Marshall, who played Ariel Shaw from Court Martial. Uh, character we both very much liked. So I had mentioned Homicidal uh, in reference to her turn in that movie, but Glenn Corbett was in that as well. But uh, yeah, he guest starred on TV shows right up until uh, he passed away in 1993. Um, and if you look at his IMDb, he's just all over the place. So you've seen it everywhere. I'm guessing a Matlock and a Murder, She Wrote. You better believe it. And Dallas. Oh, and, really? Uh, okay. Simon and Simon. Sure. So all, all the greats. The yeah. Love Boat? Uh, oh, I'm sure it's in there. Has to have happened. Yeah. <laughs> right. Speaking of Andy Griffith, as we were, you know, very briefly when we were all talking about Matlock. Um, yes. Eleanor Donahue. She's mm-hmm. Commissioner uh, Hedford. Uh, I love her. I don't, yeah. I don't know why, but there's, just, there's a thing. I mean, she was on Father Knows Best. She was uh, Betty Princess Anderson, although I, I think princess <laughs> was an honorary title uh, given to her by her father, but her father does know best, so maybe he knows something that we don't. Right. Um, really, though, where she won my heart was on the Andy Griffith show. She was Ellie Walker, kind mm. of Andy's girlfriend, I think, but I'm not really sure about that. It's been a long time since I've seen those episodes, and she wasn't on for nearly as long as Helen Crump, who, of course, was uh, Opie's teacher. And yeah. and uh, Andy's more established girlfriend, I would say. Well, I, I think you always remember Helen Crump yeah. better. Well, but, she was yeah. in color, and she was also <laughs> yeah. she was around longer. I mean, these are seriously two things, and she was more integral, I think, to well, to more stories because she was on for so much longer. But yeah, no, for for Andy Griffith girlfriends, 
<laughs> Commissioner Hedford's the one for me. Star of uh, the Andy Griffith Show in the early years. Star of Father Knows Best. And star of, you know, maybe one or two uh, black and white dreams had by yours truly. As the caterpillar changes into the butterfly, so too something changes into something else in this episode. Let's let Ken tell us more. Prologue. Aboard the Galileo, Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and some lady are headed someplace. She's Assistant Federation Commissioner Hedford, and she has Securo's disease. So they're going to rendezvous with the Enterprise, get her taken care of, then get back to prevent a war on Epsilon Canaris III. You know, as long as nothing goes wrong, like being diverted by some sort of gaseous energy something. Which, needless to say, is what happens. Act 1. Galileo is on some planet. Decent air, 75 Fahrenheit, earthy gravity. Let's go have a look around. Minus Commissioner Hedford. Spock eyes the Galileo and is a bit flummoxed. Nothing's wrong, but nothing works. Bones says his sensor readings are picking up the same gaseous energy something that they saw in space, but it's here on the planet. Suddenly, in the distance, a guy calls to them. He's as surprised to see them as they are him. He is Cochrane, marooned here for who knows how long. He's stoked to see Kirk, Spock, and McCoy, and really stoked to see the lovely Commissioner Hedford, who did not stay aboard the Galileo as instructed. Introductions all around. Cochrane can identify Spock as a Vulcan, though he seems to have never heard of the Federation. Cochrane is impressed with Galileo, though he says they won't get it working again. Some sort of dampening field that knocks such machines out of commission on this planet. Spock familiarizes Cochrane with the workings of Galileo, you know, when it works, while Kirk and Bones talk over the situation. There's something familiar about Cochrane. Also, they need to get Hedford to the Enterprise. Her Securo's disease is going to kick in soon. At Cochrane's place, that starts happening. Hedford's running a fever and getting cranky. Outside, Spock, Kirk, and McCoy get a look at the gaseous energy thing, which promptly disappears. After a bit of cajoling, Cochrane explains that that was the companion. Remember how I told you that I crashed on this planet? Yeah, actually, I was an old man. I was in space. The companion found me, brought me here, made me young again, and here I've been ever since. Cochrane, by the way, he's Zephram Cochrane, discoverer of the space warp, believed dead for 150 years. Maybe he can explain after these messages. Act 2. Turns out Cochrane went to space to die. The companion brought him here and made him young and healthy. Ironically, being here is killing Commissioner Hedford. Her Sakuros is advancing. Cochrane has said that he can communicate with the companion, prompting Kirk to ask why it brought them there. Cochrane says he already knows that answer. He told the companion that he thought he would die of loneliness. He said that in the hopes that it would release him. Instead, the companion went out and kidnapped him some friends. This freaks the fever-addled Commissioner Hedford out. Meanwhile, you know what Kirk's thinking. The companion brought us here. And if it can bring, we can kill it. He asks Spock to get on to finding a way to do that. Spock seems bothered by the idea, but he does have his orders. Kirk then begins to appeal to Cochrane. Hey, we're seeking out new life and new civilizations. Sounds cool, huh? Well, you could be part of it. Eh, we just need your help to get away. Back at Galileo, Spock is working on something. The companion comes to see what he's up to and knocks Spock the heck out with a jolt of electricity. Back at Casa de Cochrane, Kirk asks Cochrane to ask the companion if it can heal Hedford. Bones and Kirk see the two communicate for the first time. Basically, the gaseous energy field that is the companion envelops Cochrane. Less like owner and pet, more like love in Kirk's estimation. 
Bad news, though. Cochrane says the companion cannot help Hedford. Back at Galileo, Bones finds Spock, who's just regaining consciousness. He says the companion delivered an electric shock to knock him out. Bones says that should mean they can short the companion out. And that's what Spock comes up with, a device that'll scramble the companion's electrical impulses. Cochrane's not sure, though. The companion saved him, took care of him. He feels affection for the companion. He'd really rather not kill it, but eh, he understands. He goes to draw the companion out. Drawn in close enough, they throw the switch on the device. Cochrane seems to be rendered unconscious immediately. Then the companion turns toward Casa de Cochrane and begins shocking Kirk and Spock into submission. Bones yells for it to stop as we head to commercial. Act 3. Bones begs the companion to release Kirk and Spock, though it's apparently Cochrane clearing his mind and calling to the companion that gets it to relent. Kirk wonders aloud how you fight a thing like that, though Bones points out that Kirk has trained in diplomacy as well as combat. Aha! If it can bring, we can talk to it. If only we had a machine with which to do so. Spock, get to work on that. Aboard the Enterprise, Scotty and the crew have made their rendezvous with the Galileo, Galileo not included, and so he begins a methodical search of space for his missing captain and compatriots. Back at Casa de Cochran, Spock's converted the Galileo's universal translator into something that should serve as a translator for the companion. Cochran calls it to them, and Kirk begins a conversation with a decidedly female-sounding companion. Kirk makes the case that keeping the Galileo crew there against their will is wrong. But, says the companion, the man, that would be Cochrane, needs people around or he'll cease to exist. Kirk says if they're really forced to say, they'll cease to exist. Plus, one of them is really seriously going to cease to exist soon. Spock at this point is fascinated. He wants Kirk to ask the companion all sorts of questions about itself, but Kirk will have none of it. He's going to argue with the companion about getting off this rock. The companion's done with that conversation, though, and chooses instead to fade away. Hey, says Cochran, quick question. What's up with giving the companion a girl's voice? Kirk says they didn't. The companion is female. The translator picked up on that and translated it. Bones and Spock explain that it is a she, and she loves Cochran. Wait, says Cochran. That means all the time that it enveloped me? Ew! Ah! Oh, black! Ugh! Ah! That's only a slight exaggeration. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy don't get what the big deal is, though Cochran says it fed on him, it used him, and it is disgusting. Hedford, by the way, is only mostly dead. She's been listening, and she's bummed. Cochran was loved, and he resents it. She, on the other hand, has never been loved. She doesn't want to die without loving and being loved in return. Cochran makes her sad. Back outside, Kirk talks over the companion's love for Cochrane with the companion. Kirk explains if you love something, you have to set it free. Keep it in a cage and it'll die. Kind of like the woman back at Casa de Cochrane is about to die. Besides, companion, you can't really love him because he's human and you're... Well, look at ya. If I were human, there can be love, wonders the companion, right before vanishing. So... What was all that about, asked Bones. Eh, Kirk explains that sometimes in love, one makes sacrifices. He'd hoped the companion might do that, but apparently not. Meanwhile, who's that standing in the door of Casa de Cochrane? Why, it's Commissioner Hedford, looking great and calling Zephram Cochrane's name. Hey, does she sound funny to you? Act 4. So, yeah, the companion has joined Commissioner Hedford in Commissioner Hedford's body. Hedford was about to die, you see, and... What with me needing to be human, we're now sharing the body. 
Cochran's still a bit skittish, though, which makes the companion feel sad and lonely. And now she gets Cochran's need to leave. Kirk senses the change. He suggests that Spock check out their equipment, though the companion explains that that won't be necessary. Everything will work fine now. They're free to go. The companion's mortal now, but it's totally worth it because now she gets walks, talks, and real-life hand-holding with the man, even if it's only for a short time. Kirk gets in touch with the Enterprise. They'll be there to pick him up in an hour. Cochran, meanwhile, is telling the companion how great exploring the universe is going to be. They'll see everything... Except for the part where if the companion leaves the planet, then she will cease to exist. Still, she says, it was worth it for this hour of humanity with him. Cochran kisses her, and that does it for his plans to leave. He owes everything to her. He can't leave her. He loves her. Hey, wait a minute. You got a whole galaxy waiting to kiss your ring, Cochran. Plus, if you stay here, you'll grow old and eventually die. Eh, that happens, says Cochran. We'll be fine. But hey, do me a favor... Don't tell anybody I'm here. Agreeing to keep his existence quiet, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy head back to the Enterprise, and hopefully the Federation will find another woman somewhere to stop the war of Epsilon Canaris Three. The end. Yeah, uh, hopefully. Hopefully. That's kind of <laughs> crazy, right? She starts off with the same sort of higher up in the Federation snootiness. I mean, there was, we've seen a lot of those. Yeah. Well, I mean, and there was a chance, too, at the beginning that she could have been as Ahab as uh, as Deckard was. It sounded like I was calling her something else. Um, she could have been as Ahab as Deckard was, you know, with the whole like, you know, she's leaving and she's upset because the Starfleet didn't give her the proper inoculation for this <laughs> disease that, you know, one in one billion people get. She's got to right. get back there. She's got to stop that war. And yet, you know, once the um, um, thing, the companion mm-hmm. Uh, inhabits her body, no concern at all about the war. I actually kind of wonder, is is there really any Hanford left there? I, You know what? I'm glad you brought that up because I <laughs> thought the same thing. It, when she comes out and keeps insisting we are both here as both of us, and they're, they're like, really? And <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I don't buy it. Well, I, I'm, not, I think- I'm not saying it's not the case, but yeah, she loses. Well, I mean, although it is kind of interesting. I think we mentioned this earlier. Or maybe we talked about it before the show, which we really shouldn't do. Um, she, oh, in the recap where she's like, yeah, oh, he's never, he, he's been loved and he does not, and he, he rejects it. And I've never been loved. It's sort of like the whole thing that I said earlier, I think about, you know, when faced with her own mortality, she actually starts wondering, gee, what could I have done? I mean, because cause Commodore yeah. Deckard is the guy who on his deathbed says, I wish I had worked harder. Right, right. And and right. Head, Hedford's a bit different. on her, Literally on her deathbed, which is actually Cochran's bed, but still, literally mm-hmm. on her deathbed, she's like, wow, look what I did, and, and, and what was it all for? I, I kind of wish I could hold hands with a dude. Her, her freak out is pretty huge. Yeah, well, it was, it was the you fever. Know. Yeah, I, 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 I do. Think, I, I blame the disease. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Um, can, can we talk about Kirk being uh, very intent on destroying the entity? And then, <laughs> surprise, surprise. And, yeah, yeah. And, and then later, oh, wait, we can talk to it. I'm glad you brought that up in your recap. Uh, yeah. If it can bring us here, then we can kill it. Yes. Or if it can bring us here, we could try talking to it. Um, I do like the fact that he did not have to almost kill it mm-hmm. to right. talk to it. I mean, because right. that's that's been the thing. He either he either has had to almost kill something or almost die at the hands of something. 
Yeah, to, to, I, I'm going I'm to weaken you to the extent that you have to listen to me monologue. Or vice versa. Right. You're going to weaken <laughs> me to the extent where, where I'll, I'll pull out my last gun, which tends to be my biggest gun, which is my ability to communicate. Yes. I, I don't know why he always goes with that last, because that tends right. to be, eh, it makes for good TV, I suppose. It does. Yeah. It does. Yeah. I mean, we, we had to kill a little time for them to tinker around with the uh, the entity, the companion stopping device that did not stop the companion at all. Yeah. Um, hey, by the way, uh, there is a, a cool line in there when Kirk is saying to Cochran, uh, you know, you know the, the the wonders of how big the galaxy is now since you were out there exploring that he estimates or, or that Starfleet estimates millions of planets with life. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, do you know when the Drake equation was devised? Because I, I thought it was maybe right after Star Trek. But the Drake equation is the, the famous equation that posits that if you know how many stars with how many planets and then what percentage of those would have Earth-like, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, atmosphere. And then uh, out of those, how many would have supported life and then how many of those planets that supported life would actually grow to an intelligent life that would not have destroyed itself. And, you know, all of these equations. And you come out with some remarkably huge numbers um, or you can come out with remarkably small numbers. Um, but I thought that was pretty interesting that we we're saying that in our galaxy alone, there's a lot of life. And this was an enticing carrot to put in, put in front of uh, Cochrane to get him to leave. Well, I mean, let's bear in mind, though, that Kirk right now is a recruitment poster for, oh, yeah. for getting Cochrane to enlist. I mean, this is sort of like, you know, when you see in the old movies where the where the guy you know, goes to the down and out teenager and say you'll see foreign lands you'll meet all kinds of people you know i mean and try to kill them yeah generally <laughs> speaking you're not you're not getting i'm not saying that the recruiters lie i'm saying you know they yeah. tend to they, they i mean you know if you're trying to get somebody to join your cause you're generally speaking going to put it in the most positive light sure. you're, you're not going to start with cochran by going i'm going to tell you there are plenty of times where we're just like orbiting a rock taking pictures <laughs> sounds like fun <laughs> right. doesn't it <laughs> right come right. to me so yeah I, I don't i i didn't i didn't i didn't assume that the millions number i like if that was actually written out there might be an asterisk next to it yeah 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 you know, millions it, it, figurative term right <laughs> but speaking of that of kirk being the recruitment poster uh, yeah. for starfleet yeah uh, bones nails it yeah. when he says maybe you're a soldier so often that you forget you're also trying to be a diplomat duh <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, I'm glad you finally brought that to light. Yeah, um, tends not to be Kirk's way, which again is, I mean, well, I mean, it's it's the whole thing about TV. There's rising action. There's conclusion. I mean, right, right. It was called Walker, Texas Ranger, not Talker, Texas Ranger. I mean, nobody <laughs> wants. I mean, you know, <laughs> this week on the conversationalist. I mean, you know, if you're right. trying to get people to tune in, it's mostly not going to. I loved my dinner with Andre. Not a barn burner, yeah. as far as most people no. are concerned. No. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> too, too few explosions and too much talking, honestly. I was really entertained uh, every time you cut back to the Enterprise in this episode. Uh, because, it, you know, it did feel like just kind of stretching, a little padding. Like, okay, we, we get it that they're concerned on the Enterprise that they have to go find Kirk. And they're not going to give up until they find the rest of their crew. Okay, that, that's good, but you cut back a few times with that. Really, all we're concerned about is that ultimately they 
compromise with the entity and then they're going to be able to call back or leave the planetoid with the shuttlecraft. But it, did you notice that every time they cut back, it, it was pretty much always Scotty and Uhura in conversation. And, and Scotty would just sort of like stop and look off into the distance. He, he, would be, he would say something profound like, we're just going to keep looking. And he'd sort of stare off into the distance. And it was a nice little tableau with Ahura by his side as he was doing that. Now, I don't know. it seems no? to me that we could do a whole show just on those cutaways. And I'll, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, why? Because, <laughs> oh, sorry. Because um, what they're talking about is how methodical they're going to have to be. They're just, I mean, they, you know, space, mm-hmm. space is big, but they're going to have right. to search it. And then they come Sorry. to like an asteroid field and, and or something like an asteroid field. They come to all these bodies and there are thousands of them out there and they may have to search every one. You know, for a lot of people, John, just that, that, that constant work of searching it would be enough. It's okay if they never find Kirk or Spock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you. Because it's not about the goal, John. It's about, it's about doing the thing that may eventually get you to the goal. And if it doesn't get you to the goal, so what? Because you were working towards it and you're happy. It actually did speak uh, quite well of... Um, scotty they have a yeah. huge task in front of them and it's sort of like that whole you know it's, it's like the song high hopes basically it's like you know you, you start with the, the piece that you can start with how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time i mean and he's like he's you know he's that guy he's like yep got a lot of work to do and who is like yeah but that's a lot of work and scotty's like yeah it's a lot of work let's get to mm-hmm. it what was up well, though and- can i ask a question and yeah, yeah. i don't think we have this in our notes was Kirk particularly short with Spock in this episode? Oh, well, I thought that was a pretty great scene, though. Uh, you're talking about with the Universal Translator. Well, I mean, there's the one with the Universal Translator, but there's also the one where the science officer is like, hey, you know what? This might be good. Like, we could maybe get a little science out of this. I mean, as long right. as we're stuck on this planet with this thing. Right. And Kirk's like, I got no time for your science. I got to kill it or talk to it or, you know, whatever is going to solve this problem. He's like, yeah. he's, he's upset with Spock, it seems like, the whole episode. Yeah. Or yeah. he's got well, a hair trigger with Spock anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think, uh, well, I, obviously we're, we're trying to, you know, so much of, of Star Trek, so much of dramatic TV, we're trying to do things in shorthand. And I, I think we're, we're telegraphing Kirk's concern about getting off the planet. He will do whatever he has to do to get his crew off the planet back to the Enterprise. And, uh, yeah, Spock may be a little more level-headed, and Spock's not going to let us down no matter what. If Kirk says, build a device to talk to it, Spock will do it. Yeah, um, but I might but, as well be mean to him while I'm telling him to do it. Right, right. Because I'm really frustrated, and what, I'm going to go hit the gaseous energy thing? That's not going to no, work. No, 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 no. Not going to hit bones because who could fix him? It was kind of a safe bet because at least he knows Spock is, uh, he's got his emotions in check. Exactly. No so emotions. Just so he's not going to be insulted. Yeah. He'll keep st- prodding him. He'll start calling him half Vulcan any second now. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, um, hey, the, uh, the companion uh, deciding to become human uh, in order to love. Remember that scene in Superman 2? Yes. Yeah. I think I know the one you're talking about. Sure. Clark, uh, well, Superman slash yes. Clark Kent, he, he steps oh, into wait, the wait. chamber. Spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> if you haven't seen a movie that came out in 1980. No, I mean then... that, that Superman is Clark Kent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. And vice versa, just in case. And vice versa. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but he, he steps into the, um, 
into the chamber for yeah. the, uh, the rays of Krypton to take away his powers. And only then can he love Lois Lane. And I, I thought, you know, I'd do an okay job even without the losing your whole powers thing. But, um, yeah, I, for the entity, for the companion, it was a little more difficult. Well, you see, I wondered about that, though. I'm not sure it actually was more difficult. And I don't know if I don't know if we want to do this in this segment or the next segment. But I guess since we're talking about it, we can go ahead and do it now. Sure. Um, Kirk says to the companion, "You don't get love because you're not a person. <laughs> right. You don't get it." Now, a minute ago, it was okay. I mean, this stuff happens all the time, according to Bones. As far as like, yeah, it's just another kind of life form. But sure, it can love you. You can love it. Come on. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then when Kirk's making the case to the companion, it's like, nah, you can't really love him. You can think you love him, but you can't really love him. And right. you know, unless you were human, and then when it becomes human, then suddenly, I'm trying to figure out which time was a lie. Yeah, right, right. I I, I chalk it up to carbon chauvinism as always. Do you think it's carbon chauvinism? Because I was thinking maybe it was just Kirk trying to trick the companion into doing what he wanted it to do when he says, you know, well, if we mm-hmm. convince her, you know, uh, so we tell the companion love is sacrifice, or sometimes in love you have to sacrifice, so you should go ahead and let Cochrane go, and yet. It, it seems sort of like a, it seems like a bit of looped logic. You can't really love him because you're not human, so you should let him go because you love him, right. which, which you can't really do because which you're you not really human, do. right? Just yeah. kind of a circular logic there. I'll be honest, I'm not feeling this episode. Too few robots and computers for my taste. So Cochrane has a great line, immortality consists largely of boredom. And and I was thinking to myself, well, it, yeah, it, when you really sit there and ponder immortality and ponder eternity, um, that that very often sounds like a horrible fate, that there would just be no end and, uh, and existence would just keep going without anything different the next day. But then I thought about it. In this episode, Cochrane really kind of gets the next best thing. Um, the idea, this fantasy that he can live out his life again from a young age. You know, immortality may suck, but this alternative is really cool. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, the alternative that he ends up with because the um, companion becomes human and and thus is no longer able to sustain his immortality i mean he's it reminds me of and we're, we're just gonna have to give up on the idea that we don't reference other timelines in star Trek. <laughs> um when q tries to explain to i guess it was picard what being a q is like mm-hmm. and he snaps his fingers and there's like this endless road and they're just kind of sitting there on a porch and nothing mm-hmm. is happening that's the kind of immortality that Cochrane has at that point. Now, if you're going to talk about more of a Gary Marshall immortality, or Gary Mitchell, Gary Mitchell, sorry, yeah, uh, Gary. Just want to make sure that'd be kind yeah. of funny. Yeah, want to make sure we weren't talking about the TV producer. Yeah, he'll be making those movies and TV shows forever. Happy days, yeah. three thousand. <laughs> um, no, uh, if you want to talk about the kind of Gary Mitchell immortality, or maybe the Apollo immortality, um, where yeah. you're actually free to move about the universe. And be immortal. He might be a little bit less bummed by it. But, I mean, he's basically spending immortality in a waiting room yeah. with, with no people around him. So, I mean, yeah, you could argue that immortality is boring. But I think immortality and immobility 
would definitely be more boring than immortality and millions of planets with, you know, life forms to see. There's something really odd about what happens at the end of this episode where he's going to live out his life now. So mm-hmm. starting, starting with this age of, you know, he, he's a young man again. He's in his 30s and he, he has this young woman. Uh, now when they both, according to the, the, the logic and the premise of the episode, they now have their natural lives to live out. And right. we don't know exactly what that means for her because we don't know exactly what part of the companion is her. Um, but, you know, let's just say they, they live another 50 to 60 years. Um, they, <laughs> Cochrane says, leave me alone. Don't tell anybody that I'm here. Yep. So you've got the two of them with this little house. Nice, nice mid-century design, by the way. I like it quite a lot. Yeah. Um, and nothing else. There's no running down to the pharmacy if one of them catches a cold. Um, or it, gets it, Sakura's disease, for crying out loud. Or it gets Sakura's disease. So you, you've got a lot of problems with that. I, I think I would say, hey, leave us alone for 15 years and then come back and check on us because I may need some help. How about why don't you tell people that we're here but don't tell them who I am? Mm, I mean, yeah. that might actually work, too, because there's not to be, you know, when you were the companion, you never bugged me about taking out the trash. I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> I, we don't know anything about her. <laughs> exactly. There is a lot that can go wrong now that she and I'm, I'm not saying that everything was right before she was human. But, yeah, he's making a pretty snap decision there. But, you know, you can go ahead and do the whole thing that we always do where it's um, it's an anthology show. It's 48 yeah. minutes. You got to wrap it up. Yeah. You but know. I mean, you know, between the, the unknowns about the personality of the companion yeah. and the unknowns about Helen's personality, because, you know, she's she's a little uh, maybe difficult to get along with at the beginning. Yeah, we could chalk that up to the disease. But, um, you know, Zephyr might be in for a rough few years. We don't know. <laughs> they just might not get along. Yeah. Or she might. She I mean, she might be as well. There's a whole new um, there's a whole new set of physical stimuli coming her way. And who knows how she's going to react to that. I don't mean to sound like a horrible. I don't I want to sound gross about it. But yeah, she's been energy. She's been yeah. light. She's been, you know, she's never had the weight of gravity. And yeah. now she's even got that. I mean, let alone this guy's going to try to touch her. I mean, they kissed and it went okay. But, you know, right. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of she's going to have to find food that agrees with her. Yeah. I mean, there's like there's like a whole boatload of stuff. But but don't tell any but don't tell anybody we're here. In I fact, know. If you could forget where we are and you'll never see us again. Yeah. Kind of. A, yeah. I, I think at some point Cochran going to be like, where? <laughs> We could get another starship to drop by, and uh, <laughs> should be nice to talk to some other people at some point. Hey, why don't we go have dinner with? Oh, yeah, sorry, it's just <laughs> us. <laughs> and yet, there does seem to be a moment where he's thinking they're going to have a kid. Pity that kid. I know, and I'm, I'm extrapolating quite yeah. a bit, but where he says, um, "I might plant a fig tree." My assumption is that we're doing a little Adam and Eve reference there, right. and and right. you know, of course, Adam and Eve uh, they were charged with peopling the earth. And they didn't yeah. do it all by themselves, I don't think. But, you know, they were yeah. charged with doing that. So they're going to have a kid. And really, life's going to suck for that kid. Right. <laughs> because right. at some point, th- there's not going to be anybody anymore. 
Yeah, he's got to have the talk. Cochran's got to sit down the kid and say, well, you see, there would be other people, but I told them to leave us alone. <laughs> Let me tell you a story. When a man and yeah. a woman, and I know only half that makes sense to you, but really this <laughs> right. probably actually isn't the best story to tell you now that I think about it. Why don't you go play? Right, right. So, I, yeah, yeah, it's a little little tough there. But it, it, I thought it was an interesting idea that uh, even without the immortality you set yourself up for a very interesting problem of then getting to live your life over again, but live your life over again in this isolated way. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's a choice that I would necessarily make. Um, so the entity, the, the companion, created a cage for Cochrane. We, we come back to this idea that we've seen in Star Trek before with the cage and, and IMUD. And uh, here's a Kirkism. Uh, he, he said it in many ways so many times before it is a nature of our species to be free um i just had to bring it in there because well kirk says it a lot and he, he says it about being the absolute nature of humanity that we have to be free yeah uh, so he's he's going to fight the companion even if the companion and cochran are pretty okay with the arrangement that they have well here's what i'll say i mean yeah kirk's always going to say that um, mm -hmm. I don't disagree with him this time because Cochran wants off the planet. This is yeah. not this is not an apple. This is not a um, this is not a this side of paradise. I mean, this is this guy wants to leave the planet, and he's happy to have other mm -hmm. people there now. But he wants to leave the planet. He wants to go do yeah. other things, and of course, that's only excited by Kirk, who says, yeah, "Hey, yeah. billions of stars, let's go check them all out, huh?" You know, right? So, right. Yeah, it doesn't well, feel, it, it doesn't feel quite the same to me though as the cage or or you know the conversation that we had in IMOD because this is not about oh this guy's fine and happy. I mean he likes the companion, he appreciates the companion, but he he really wants to see other people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> Until he sees her as people, but yeah, yeah. Well, well, well let's talk about that because uh, hey, shocker! In this episode, the companion is feminine. Mm -hmm. Well, that just changes everything because if the companion's feminine, well, she absolutely cannot be a zookeeper. And uh, hey, maybe Kirk can seduce it. Um, <laughs> You're crazy! I, I, what? I thought I thought it was very strange that that you you have this idea. You, you throw out the idea that male and female are universal constants. It is actually said in the episode, mm -hmm. male and female are universal. And then we are ascribing this sort of conventional idea of male and female and, and deciding that those apply to this alien thing that we know nothing about. Um, okay. And just, mm -hmm. I know that generally speaking, I'm the guy who says that Star Trek is sexist. Mm-hmm. Kirk made a quick leap from, I mean, before he knew that the companion was female, he made a quick leap from owner and pet to something that loves something else in a mm -hmm. way that, you know, I mean, I love my dog, but, you know, owners and pets. I mean, he, he's, he's seeing more of a, he's seeing more of a intelligent being loving another intelligent being thing going on there. And, and for that reason, I would back this off the sexist thing. Now we can talk about whether or not, I mean, 1967, 68 television is not ready to talk openly about homosexuality. I mean, the assumption is that, that, oh, well, it's a woman and they've seen the way that they love each other. I mean, they've, they, they've inferred a lot about the way they communicate. At least Kirk has mm -hmm. in thinking mm -hmm. that, okay, well, this entity 
loves and cares for Cochrane. Not like, yeah, I'm going to feed it three times a day and take it for a walk when it needs to go for a walk. I mean, I mean, there's there's a real love there, I think. So it didn't feel to me like it was just because it was a woman that they're assuming that it can't be anything else. It, it felt more to me like they had witnessed its level of emotional involvement. Well, I, I totally, yeah, I totally agree with you. And, and I, and I don't think it's necessarily a, it's not a big sexist thing that we're dealing with here. I, I agree with you. There's something compassionate and, and very true mm-hmm. about the, the kind of love that they see between them. I, I just think that it, the first taste of that, that we get is our crew saying, Oh, well, if the entity is female, there's no way it can be evil. If the entity is female, it must have compassion. You know, that, that, that's kind of the... Uh, now, they go beyond that. Of course, they go beyond that. And they see that, that there's something genuine about the relationship. But I, I thought that initial reaction was... Eh, it didn't sit right with well, me. Well, I mean, again, it feels to me like it's shorthand, though, of what you're allowed to talk about on television and what you're not. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was hard for me when, when Cochrane starts losing his... Um, I'm not going to say that word that people apparently think I say from time to time on this show because I don't. Darn it! Right. Um, when Co- show. when Cochrane starts losing it over the fact that you know this entity has been intimate with him, yeah, um, it is very difficult in this day and age not to think of um, that as a momentary stand-in for homosexuality. Not that we actually approach that as a topic, but when Cochrane reacts so violently. Yeah. To having thought that their relationship was one thing and then, you know, finding out that it was something else when he uses the term disgusting and has just like an absolute fight or flight response. Yeah. I don't know if it was intentional. I don't know how intentional that was or if it was intentional at all, but it put me in mind of 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 thoughts around homosexuality, less than less than um, less than generous thoughts around homosexuality. Now, that said, in 1960, we're allowed to talk about love in terms of men and women. Mm-hmm. We're not allowed to. I mean, there is no way that that's going to be a guy who's in love with Cochrane. Maybe you do that on DS9. Maybe you do that on Star Trek The Next Generation. Although The Next Generation might still be a tiny bit too early to actually just, you know, sort of trot that out as here's a thing. Yeah. Um, well, it, I, it didn't I, feel I, to I, me like saying that, oh, it's a woman, so it can't be malevolent. It felt to me like saying... Well, we thought they loved each other, but now that we know that that's female, yeah, she's totally in love with him. I mean, it just it yeah. felt to me like just deciding that, you know, based on the fact that that it is a woman and based on the fact that we're not allowed to talk about homosexuality. Yeah. Well, I I, I totally agree with you because I you know, there are some great great lines in here when Cochran has that reaction <laughs> with Spock Spock saying his reaction is totally parochial or or to put another way provincial, you know, I, those those are great, and those really speak to the the, the kind of um, enlightened view that Star Trek is trying to take. Yeah, we, we are not we, we're not judging or assuming about this entity at all. We're we're looking at it for what it is, for for what it presents to us. So that that's you know, I go back to that thing about the perceived sexism of assuming qualities about it being female. But regardless of that, once you get beyond that, the more meaty, the more interesting stuff is Cochrane's reaction and then the crew's reaction to that. 
Well, can, I, I think it's terrific. Do you think then, uh, so if we're going to assume for a moment, and again, I wasn't really thinking that it was necessarily, but the more we talk about it, I mean, mm-hmm. is is there actually a little bit of an argument for accepting homosexuality in this episode? I mean, when Cochran has his total ook out and mm-hmm. everybody's like, what is wrong with you? I mean, this, this is just the thing. Well, okay. I mean, let, let's put it into context. We can do this two ways. So we put it into context of 1967 TV, then no, I don't think it's that. Uh, if you put it in context of the 21st century, then yes, I, I, obviously you can say that. But I think the more, the, the bigger picture here, the big Star Trek picture is, you know, love is a, love is a thing that is decided upon by the people who are in love. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not something that then we, we should or we would have to set boundaries around that. Even if, even if you take kind of love out of the equation here and we just look at Star Trek and its treatment of alien entities before this, look at the Horda. You know, again, yeah. the, the Horda is a creature, and that's why that power, the, the episode is so powerful, that we are meant to feel sympathy and empathy, even though it could not be any less human. Um, we're just taking it kind of to the next level here, where we're saying not only is this thing not human, it's something that we can have an emotional bond with and a very powerful bond for, uh, for Cochrane. Hmm. Um, and it's not it's not for us to judge <laughs> what what that relationship may be because it it works. See, I kind of see. I'm kind of wondering now, and this really wasn't anything that I was thinking before we started this conversation. But I'm reminded of things like um, like documentaries, like the Celluloid Closet, which mm-hmm. you know looks at homosexuality long before we're allowed to talk about homosexuality in movies. I mean, like the sure. idea that was it Ben Hur that his best friend was in love with him. Don't tell Heston. Yeah. Which I thought yeah, was hysterical. Right. Charlton Heston was never told, according to you know, all the stories around it, that his his friend, whose name escapes me, mm-hmm. was playing it as if he was in love with him. But he's playing it mm-hmm. totally as if he's in love with him. But it's not something that you're allowed to talk about. Yeah. I mean, you can say that, okay, so in the Star Trek universe, they're saying, what? You can love energy just as much as you can love a woman, but you're not going to yeah. love energy. <laughs> I mean, so, <laughs> I mean, if you're making an argument for don't be weird about love that you don't understand – it actually yeah. seems to me, I mean, unless you're unless you're putting up a poster for Nambla, which I certainly hope you're not, it really seems to me that this might actually be a defense of that in a very short time. I mean, it's yeah. not it's yeah, definitely yeah. not the it's definitely not the emphasis of the episode. Well, no, but I mean, you, you play it the safe route where you, you have the the entity be feminine and they make a big deal out of that. Right. And then the entity inhabits a human female. So, you know, again, we're, we're, we're kind of drawing those lines there. We're being very specific about that. Right. Um, but, but Cochran falls in love with the, the mind and the, and the care and compassion of the entity. It, ah. It's sort of like a, it's sort of like a bonus that, uh, Hey, now she's inhabited the super hot Nancy Hedford. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you see, obviously we're not going to get, I mean, we're not going to get, Paul Lynn is not going to be the guy that this inhabits, right? Well, exactly. But if there's they a chance down with a sick male crew member, right? Then no, this exactly. episode would not have played out that way. But what if it had been like a, you know, we've talked about this before. There's nobody unattractive on Star Trek. 
I right. mean, unless they are, unless they're like the three witches covered in bacon, you know, that are outside the <laughs> right. castle on Catspaw, <laughs> right? Um, or somebody that's been horribly disfigured, and that's part of the story, a la um, the cage or the menagerie. Yeah. Take your pick. Yeah. Um, ha- had this been like a fifty-five-year-old, you know, kind of hunchback, slightly overweight, <laughs> you know, yeah. right. still human. Still female, still, you know, the basics that apparently we've decided Cochrane is going to need for a companion. And it's got the, you know, all the companion part of the companion cares for him, loves him, you know, wants to be with him. Is he staying on that planet if she doesn't look like um, Ellie Walker? Yeah, I don't think so. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I hate to say it, but the, the, the ending might have been yeah, well, really yeah. different. When you reveal that the companion cannot leave the planet, um, Cochran be like, well, let's let's go ahead a little bit. We'll bring you back. Yeah, hey, 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 <laughs> Kurt, do me a favor. Tell people I'm here. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, I feel bad. I want to stay for a while because I do like her. But you know, have some mm-hmm. people stop by. We'll have people over. Once we had a whole show before us, now we approach its end. What have we learned throughout this metamorphosis? the weed eater in the neighborhood in the background someplace indicates to me that it's about time to wrap up this show but before we wrap up the show we do this thing that we do uh, that leads to wrapping up the show trying to figure out what the messages morals and meanings were and whether the episode stands the test of time metamorphosis john i put it to you does this episode hold up i really think it does um you, you know we we always try to qualify an answer, uh, a yes or no, based on various elements of the episode. There are things about the production that you can say don't hold up. Um, but e- even though this is a sound stage and you have that tiny little mid-century modern house in the middle of it, um, it it's all of that is overcome by the acting and the writing, um, the the drama that builds, and I, I think what plays as for the most part, pretty, pretty genuine, pretty believable human reactions to what's going on. Um, I think it holds up very well. Uh, I think ultimately we have this very nicely told story of love and sacrifice. And uh, it's kind of, kind of nice to watch that play out. How about you, Ken? Yeah, no, I'm with you. I think uh, the only thing that I would uh, disagree with you on mm-hmm. Generally speaking, when I watch these episodes, I don't even – I mean all that stuff just is. You know, it was mm-hmm. 1960s television and so, yeah, it's going to be a soundstage for the most part and it's going to be purple and, you know, mm-hmm. the effects aren't necessarily going to be as good as you want them to be and the costumes might be a little weird. Right. But, I mean, all that was very much a product of the times. The only time stuff like that bothers me is when, you know, oh, it's a giant cat. No, it's not yeah, a giant right. cat. It's a cat. In front of a really tiny door. I mean, <laughs> right. when when you when you try really hard and miss the mark so wildly, yeah. then those kinds of things bother me. But otherwise, Star Trek looks like Star Trek. And there's really something, I mean, uh, sort of in the same way that there's a beauty about Forbidden Planet. Yeah. Those, yeah. those are not the kinds of effects you would do right now. Or I even love, oh, what is it? Rocky Jones mm-hmm. of Star Command. I, I can't, it's not, it's not Star Command. It's Jason of Star Command. It's Rocky Jones. Yeah. Um, there's just a great sort of, you know, somewhere between Forbidden Planet and Flash Gordon and a little bit of Star Trek in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. So when I see all of that stuff, 
on an episode of Star Trek, it's, it's like putting on a it's like putting on a comfy sweater to me. Mm-hmm. So that does not detract, especially in this episode at all. Um, and let's leave Cat's Paw, you know, for another time. Or or <laughs> let's leave Cat's Paw. Maybe yeah. it would be a better way to go. Um, as far as the telling of the story, it actually it actually works out really well. I like Hedford's, well, her metamorphosis, honestly. Yeah. Her change. Yeah. I like the fact that on her deathbed she has regrets. That's kind of yeah. cool. Um, it's weird to see Cochran as Neil Armstrong because I am more familiar with Cochran from First Contact, and I kind of love Cochran in First Contact. Mm-hmm. You know, this mm-hmm. guy who's like, he's working towards something really big, and then somebody comes to him and says, dude, you have no idea how big this is going to be. And rather than, you know, pulling the Captain Morgan pose and standing there as if, you know, he is master of all he surveys, Cochran goes and gets drunk and runs right. away. And right. I love I love that Zephram Cochran. Yeah. That said, I mean, this Zephram Cochran is accessible to a 1960s audience. Um, and you kind of like the idea that he's, you know, that he actually, he doesn't have the flaws that the Cochran in First Contact had. And yet he's still going to choose to stay here with this person that he loves. Again, doesn't well, but remember, like you know, Walker. Even if you're messing around with the timeline, you know, this Cochran has had it all to do over again. Yes. So you could even justify things uh, just on that logic alone. So, yeah, you know, but, but yeah, like, like you said, this is the right stuff, Zephram Cochran. Yeah. And, yeah. and it, it's kind of cool to see that version of him. Yeah, it is. It is kind yeah. of interesting. So I would say, I mean, so I would say, yeah, this episode works as far yeah. as a production. I mean, as long as you are somebody who's willing to either enjoy or look past, you know, the mm-hmm. limitations of when it was made. Yeah, I, I think it looks very good. Like it, with its purple sky. Yeah, you go. It, okay, it's the sound stage and it's the the limitations of budget, but it, it it's very dramatic. And you were making TV for a color TV specifically. Yeah, and trying to to sell that and just amp up all the colors. But it looks good. It looks really nice. The 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 companion effect. Um, I'm not crazy about it. There are a lot of science fiction effects where it's just a bunch of lights, but. Again, that happy accident with Nancy holding up the scarf really yeah. sells that. It really makes that work beautifully. It is actually that part is actually is actually very very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to say that there's no overt message. I mean, there's not there's not yeah, the you see Timmy. There's not a save the whales or anything mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, agree or disagree? Um, I, I don't think there's an overt message, but. I think the message is that we can kind of extract from this by by digging around, and and we did in our discussion the, this idea of, um, gosh, you know, to to be very uh, you know fortune cookie about it. Love is blind. Um, there's something really nice about that. Why, why do you laugh at that? Well, because love is only blind as long as once you get your sight back, it looks like Ellie Walker. I'm no. sorry. I mean that will be no. Yeah. I mean that will be the one thing that I will say. I mean. Love is blind when the woman is pretty. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I mean, yes, the, there is this problem of, like I said, having to put some kind of recognizable, identifiable restriction around what's going on here. But but it, it doesn't take away, like I said, from this bond that that they have. It, it takes the crew of the Enterprise coming down there. You know, the McCoy is the ones who, who says it like, come on, can't you see it? She's in love with you. Yeah. You know, um, 
and and in this very nice Star Trek way, they they all kind of McCoy has this great smile on his face and they reveal that. And then they approach the problem differently. So I, I, I think it's a really lovely set of moments. Yes. And of course I guess probably the chief takeaway is yeah, stopping a war. Eh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, somebody else can do it. Yeah, you know. yeah. Hey, maybe you can do that. In fact, why don't you write to us and tell us how you would stop the war on Canarsis Epsa thing. You can reach <laughs> us on Facebook. You can reach us on Skype. You can reach us on Twitter. All of those at the handle Mission Log Pod. Or you can call us 323-522-5641. That number again, 323-522-5641. You can email us missionlog at roddenberry.com. And, of course, we would love it if you would check out our website, missionlogpodcast.com. It's got kind of a nice uh, somewhere between Forbidden Planet and Star Trek kind of feel. Remember, by the way, if you do send us comments to any of those things that we mentioned, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. You know what, Ken? Next week I'm feeling like a little road trip. How about we go on a journey to Babel? Some of the music for the mission log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages, by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. And now if you'll excuse me, Ambassador Hedford, Zephram Cochran and I, are headed to Mount Pilot for the picture show. and transmission. Now leaving Nerdist.com.